Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join Gelt. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. We're going to be talking about the good stuff that we like to hear, building, scaling, financing, I mean, you name it, you know, and, and also quite a competitive entrepreneur. You know, he used to be a really good tennis player. But again, you know, I think we're going to find this inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Nick Krominas. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Excited to be here. So originally, you know, grew up there in Illinois, in the suburbs. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, it was it was great. I mean, we grew up in a northern suburb of Chicago called Glenview. It was idyllic. You know, schools were great. So it, it was it was really a great place to grow up. And um and we had a small even though I'm Greek, you'd think I have a large family. I actually just have one brother and it was my dad and I growing up. So it was you know, it was different. We had a small family, but we loved it. And um Still have a ton of great friends there, and I actually live three miles away now, so still still close to to where I grew up. Now, tell us about getting competitive, because I mean, you picked up the racket, and and that was it. Yeah, yeah. So tennis was a huge part of my life. Uh, so I started playing tennis when I was about ten years old. No, actually, I started when I was five, but really like sunsetted every other sport when I was ten. So only focused on tennis, which was kind of sad at the first because I quite loved baseball and basketball and everything else, but. You know, it was one of those moments where I just needed and just specialize in something and put my heart into it. And so it was a weird decision for a 10 year old, but it was my decision and um, and I loved it. And so I started practicing four to five days a week at a young age and playing tournaments and missing, you know, 50 to 60 days of school a year at, at as a 12 year old on to, to go play and compete around, around the country and the world. So it was playing tennis was a huge part of, of who I am. So then tell us about getting into college, you know, with the uh, with tennis. You know, you went to Vanderbilt there, D1 tennis. Uh, I'm sure that it was quite the, um, how would I say this, like like heartbreaking because all of a sudden, you know, like your dream is to make it to a U.S. Open and, and then all of a sudden, you know, like that's not the case. When did you realize that they, perhaps, you know, that was not the path for you to follow? Pretty soon um, in my in my college tennis career, so I, I had a good college career, a fine college career. But we we were for, fortunate in Nashville to host a professional tournament every year. So one of the you know, almost minor league tournaments. So it was called the Challenger. The equivalent in professional baseball would be 
you know, kind of AAA baseball. Um, so one click right before some of the major events for the pros or the real pros. And, um, and so we hosted this event and I got to play a guy that was like 120 in the world or 130 in the world. And he beat me so badly um, that I was just like, wow, is this the level that I'll have to rise to? And I was a sophomore in college, but you know, I think I pretty quickly realized like my athletic ceiling had a certain limitation and I was going to make the best out of it in college, but I probably wouldn't have too fruitful of a career as a professional. Wow. So then, so then when, when that comes to mind, you know, like what ended up happening there? Because, you know, things took a turn there, you know, you ended up becoming a, you know, out of college, you know, an assistant coach, but then you were like, eh, I'm not into being a tennis coach. Yeah. And I love the sport. And like, maybe one day I'd go back into it. And so still, it's still a huge part of who I am. But I'm interested, it was one of those things, like the life of a college tennis coach is, it's grueling. Like you are recruiting all summer on the road. And during the season, you're basically living on the road as well. Your weekends are monopolized with matches, your days off are Mondays. And I think as a, as a tenure, basically from 10 to 23, my whole life and my whole schedule is dictated by the sport. And after that, you know, I just got to a point where you know, I wanted to make sure that the decisions I made on where I lived the things I'd spend my time in and do, I had a little bit more control of and then aligned to traditionally a little bit more of the normal society. And so, so I think that was a big driving force is I wanted to pick where I wanted to live. I wanted to pick the nights I could go out. I wanted to pick the nights and, and the days I could do different things. Um, and then frankly, I was just burnt out. Like when you play nothing but, you know, the same sport since you're 10 years old and my last year at Northwestern, I was in the court, you know, eight to 10 hours a day. Um, my body was just burnt out. I was physically and mentally tired. and so. I think uh, transitioning out felt really right. And it's not to say I don't didn't love my time in the sport. I still cherish it. And it's given me so many different blessings in a wide variety of ways. But but um, but I kind of knew it was it was time to to hang out my rackets. So going into business, tell us about that. Yeah. So I I had an interesting transition from tennis to my professional career. So I graduated in the last sort of recessionary period in 2009. Could not find a job. Only job I found was obviously being a tennis coach. And then um, after that, which you know, thank God is recessionary proof, mostly. Um, after that, I really wanted to go try my hand at business. And so I wanted to get into consulting. I was a part of a program at Vanderbilt before I graduated that like really gave you real, real world experience and working on a wide variety of different projects with real companies. And I was intrigued at this idea of, you know, you could be paid to learn how different businesses work and not necessarily do the same thing every day for years. And that really appealed to me. And so I tried to pursue a career in consulting. And given it was 2009, you know, I was able to get network my way in to get an interview, but I was competing against people with three to five years of real consulting experience or PhDs or investment bankers. And like my only real tangible skill set was hitting a tennis ball. And so, you know, really then found my way into doing kind of a small family business job for a year. Um, we manufactured and built things out of glass and metal, and it was it was sort of a baptism by fire where I knew nothing about business, but I was effectively the chief of staff and of a CEO in about a three to four million dollar company, and was really learning a ton about what it takes to actually run a small business. and And during that experience, I started building my first software business on the side, which was called Affiance, which effectively was a way to aggregate student athletes and their alumni in one database, kind of like LinkedIn groups before LinkedIn groups existed, and um, in a way for them to network and sort of solving the pain point that I had trying to find a job. And so, um, you know, really left the small business, 
got this product, got this business off the ground, had a couple paying customers, and then I actually used that um, experience to convince KPMG that I, that I had enough business acumen to be considered for an experienced associate hire in 2010. And why did you realize that corporate was not for you? Because, I mean, obviously, you know, like KPMG would be your last day rodeo in corporate America. It only took like two years for you to say it's not for me. Yeah, I actually knew in two weeks, too. Um, you know, I think I think there's a couple things that a few of my mentors in life have told me that have always rung true. And and then there's obviously these experiences of playing like a competitive sport in your entire life. And so. You know, I think the from the competitive sport angle, you know, I always wanted to be in an environment where you're only limited by your own imagination and work ethic. And corporate America, although it serves an incredible purpose for a wide variety of different professionals, is not the most attuned to really, you know, creating and jettisoning someone's career for those who really want to work. There's all these organizational structures and barriers to grow in a company as fast as you'd like. Um, and you have to play somewhat of a game versus really, you know, your own excellence in a role. And so as an athlete that was used to kind of sinking or swimming on my own merit, it, it didn't really register for me. And so that was the first. And the second was, and this is no knock on my previous employer. Like I love my time at KPMG. I met great friends that I still talk to today and learned so much. But, you know, one of my best mentors said at the end of the day, in the job you're at, you want to look around and see if there's anyone you aspirationally want to be down the road. And I always found myself um, admiring entrepreneurs, the way they built and created, or the way they bucked the system, or the way they took a wide variety of risk. And, um, and KPMG was a very safe place where you do incredibly well over the course of your career, but you know, there wasn't a ton of risk associated with it. And so, and so really, I, I, I wanted to kind of try my own hand and build, build things. And, and the first experience of building that software company gave me the bug, and I, and I had to go do my own thing. Now, a software agency you know, you guys were developing stuff for others. So, I mean, you, you were not a technical, you know, really a technical guy. So how do you come across, you know, this and, and, and how did you go about it? Yeah, I think passion, you know, it's amazing what you can do if you are just really excited about learning something. And I found that in tennis, I found that in a lot of different elements in my life. And so, you know, at the time, native mobile apps weren't a thing. They had just launched Instagram and just got acquired for a billion dollars. And um, by Facebook or Meta now, and I was obsessed with like what you could create using a cell phone, what you could create using the internet. And so we built our first um, business called Athlience, which didn't end up working out, but it got me my first job. But I love that experience. Like whatever you can imagine, you can go create. You can do so with limited cost structure. You just need an engineer or two. And I had a great co-founder who's still a co-founder today of, of Home Club. Um, and so really was passionate about this idea of like just leveraging technology to create a wide variety of different things. And so. So that really fueled it. And so KPMG helped hone those skills a little bit. We did a lot of tech-based projects, um, learned how to be kind of a stronger project manager, create clear outcomes and goals, things of that nature. But, you know, a big reason why um, why I think I am in was in the software space or started becoming building a software agency called New Coast years ago was just the idea that you could create for a lot of different people. And it almost applied this idea that I loved consulting, which was learning from so many different industries and, and other people to um, something I love to do, which is build software. And as a result of that, you know, one of the projects that you guys ended up incubating was say, Hunt Club. So, uh, so tell us about Hunt Club, you know, like how does the whole idea of Hunt Club come about? And, and at what point do you realize, hey, you know, like what, maybe we should uh, put a little bit extra muscle into this one? Yeah. So Hunt Club 
for starters, Hunt Club is a new category search firm. So we leverage all our own technology to automate and augment as much of the process as possible um, to create a better experience. And our big differentiator is we use a network of thousands of business leaders to refer for your roles. So, you know, not just one recruiter's network, cold calling, think of, you know, thousands of CMOs giving you warm referrals and, and warm introductions to really great talent all across the country. Um, and so it's been really fun building that business. Like the genesis of it was really kind of on two or three observations. So the first was with Newcoast, we had, we had created an investing arm and we kept investing in early stage, growth stage companies and realized many of them were engaging recruiting firms or headhunting firms and routinely kind of having a poor experience. And we thought a big reason for that was the type of talent that you need to make Dollar Shave Club successful versus potentially like P&G is quite a bit different, right? And the market really didn't have a service provider yet or a provider that really understood what it was like to help these growth stage, early stage companies drive impact. So I thought there was a huge delta there. And then the second was, um, was actually just an experience I had. So I had a friend that was a partner at one of the major search firms, and he got incredibly good at looking at my LinkedIn network, my Gmail network, and saying, hey, Nick, I saw you're connected to Alejandro. He looks like a great fit for CEO of this company. Can you make an introduction? And so I did that multiple times over a summer, placed multiple people for him, and just kept getting a thank you note back saying, hey, like, I, you know, I would have never taken this job had it not come from you. And I'm so excited. And I'd call my recruiter friend and he said, yes, thank you for helping. And, and I was like, what is this industry? Um, so I spent a ton of time shadowing different firms, big ones, small ones, public ones, private ones wide variety of different business models, and just came to the conclusion, none of them use any technology really to power their process. Um, certainly at the time, and it's actually hasn't advanced too much since with the exception of people using LinkedIn, you know, really stale tools and technology that aren't dynamic that help make any part of the experience better or create more productive ways for their consultants or recruiters to operate. But they all use networks and they all built networks in different geos and functions, and they call them those networks when they want a new search and they needed ideas on who'd be a great fit and asked who would you refer. And so I thought, what if we just built a totally new model, which combined best in class technology and the world's largest referral network for talent. Um, and that was kind of the idea. And so we, we got off to the races in 15 and been building it since. And how do you guys make money for the people that are listening, Nick, to get it? Yeah. So we charge a, a start fee and a success fee. So generally, there's a retainer to start search with Hunt Club, and then and then a, a more on the back end once we actually successfully complete the engagement, which our clients generally love because if you think about most of the market, it's this fully retained model that is a bit misincentivized with um, with people's clients. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domains. I mean, I can tell you one thing, and that is that as a founder, you're always thinking about branding. Now, one thing that is very important in that, you know, is that. You need traction, you need to grow, you need to succeed. And having a name that is recognizable on a really amazing domain is the way to go. So that is why it's very important to establish the online presence with a clear and distinguishable identity. And you can do that with .tech domains. So .tech domains are the go-to namespace to build anything in tech. They have actually helped many brands in the industry to make a name for themselves, just like OneX.tech with their advanced Androids designed to replicate human movements and behaviors. So really, really, really cool stuff and cutting edge. And again, thousands of companies like this, you know, are also taking advantage of .tech domains. So 
Uh, also, remember that .tech domains can do the same you know, for your company. They're also providing a great offer to every single one of you in the DealMakers audience. Is one-year domain for $10 and a five-year domain for $50. So head now to the special URL, which is go.tech slash dealmakers. And that is, again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers. So go get your own domain. Founder Market Fit, Nick, why were you passionate about, about, you know, this segment to really, you know, take a stab at it? Yeah. Yeah, I think I've built a lot of businesses for the last 12 years. And, and I work with a lot of different entrepreneurs who are creating businesses, whether it's investing or whether it's um, supporting them as an advisor or just partnering them with Via Hung Club. And I think there's always a clear distinction between those that create something really special and it's this concept of founder market fit. And so when a, when, a, when a founder is solving a problem that they're really passionate about, right, one that they really want to solve, it may not work in the end for a wide variety of reasons, but like because there's passion rooting the cause, you're willing to run through walls. You're willing to, to keep going when you lose that big customer or you lose that big pitch or when 100 VCs say no to you because they don't quite get it, or for a wide variety of other reasons, right? And so, you know, I think when you think about like the the challenges of building a business or being an entrepreneur and starting a company, the amount of problems and issues and obstacles that present themselves, it's really easy just to quit. And I've done that before in other businesses, um, ones that I was less passionate about solving the problem. And so when I think about Hunk Club and and others that you know we work with that really have this idea of founder market fit. Every challenge or every obstacle just feels like another challenge or obstacle, not like a, you know, a uh, existential moment every time something goes wrong, right? And I think that's how you know you're building something you're meant to build and something that has a chance of maybe being successful one day because you're really just trying to solve an acute problem that that you're passionate about and and that's sort of founder market fit. So building teams, you know, you guys obviously you know help with search for a living. So how did you search for people for yourselves? Yeah, you know, we have a cobbler shoe problem. Um, no, I'm kidding. We use Hunk Club. Uh, so, you know, I think there's a lot of things that people get wrong when they think about hiring executives or building teams. In today's world, talent looks different all the time, right? And skill sets, because of how fast technology is evolving, are changing all the time. And then I also think, like, post COVID, you know, what people want in the world, both personally and professionally, is constantly changing as well, right? So like you look at pre-COVID, there's this idea that you would work and continue to evolve your career and eventually get to a certain point and then you retire, right? And I think post-COVID, people are starting to prioritize a wide variety of things for the first time quite differently. Work-life balance, work-life integration, uh, mission-driven companies, value-driven companies, high growth, slow growth. Like, you know, I think people's whole framework on what they pick has changed um, post-COVID pretty dramatically. And so so when we think about like talent and helping our clients, we really think about like what is the right archetype of different profiles that might make a fit for their role? Because it's really not one size fits all. Those who go to market looking for talent and have a very rigid framework on it has to be these 14 things, otherwise we won't hire them. They're generally the ones that never really get great talent um, because it's more fluid than that, right? Organizational structures are more fluid. Um, Talent is more fluid and the skills you need today may not be what drives success tomorrow. And so we really encourage both ourselves and then also our clients to make sure that they're really flexible in setting up a couple different profiles that could work 
as well as a couple different ways that org might work depending on the type of talent we can get. And that generally yields a way better output than, um, than a really rigid framework. So what is a question that you would always ask the people that uh, you're looking to bring on board to your team that you're like, I'm definitely going to pay much attention to the answer on, on this one? Yeah, it's, it's all about resiliency and change management. Um, so when you think about our company, we've grown from 40 people to close to you know, 150, 180 in the last 18, 24 months. And the business has changed dramatically every single time, every single cycle. And so you know, what we really think about is like, how do people handle change? Tell me about how you handle change in your last company in your life in some moment where, where things were complex. And I think that the way you listen to those answers, the way that they answer the question, the things they pick, um, I think is a really good leading indicator in how they might operate in sort of a higher growth environment or a sort of changing environment. That's a good one. Now, what about what about when it comes to people on the investment side, because you guys have raised quite a bit of money. How much capital have you guys raised to date? Yeah, we raised $54 million today. So how did you go about getting the right people for the right reasons to give you the money? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it's serendipity, right? And I think like a big thing, a big mistake that serendipity for us, and I'll tell that story in a second, but I think a big mistake a lot of founders make is they take hundreds of calls uh, without being super targeted and selective of like, What's their business model? What's their business? What's their vision? Who are their relationships? Who are the right investors for the business? And, you know, I think they'd save a lot of time if they really like were selective on who they actually engage with versus trying to boil the ocean. And so we've always been really selective and deliberate in how we've raised money. We've never actually been in a full fundraising process. Um, we've always either put together capital through family and friends, family office, entrepreneurs, and customers for our first two rounds. People like, we were screaming with excitement to work with that we wanted to be a part of our story that we wanted to have skin in the game that we wanted to learn from. And so we had the great couple early syndicates of just like entrepreneurs who have built billion dollar businesses, family offices who have created like companies that are still standing, creating a legacy for their, their next generations, their families and more. Um, and then in our previous two rounds, it was really serendipitous. And so, and all through network effects, which is our whole business model home club. So, um, one of our uh, investors and our clients, G2, uh, their CEO, Goddard Abel, introduced us to you know, a guy named Thomas Learman and another guy named Stephen Schmalhofer, who led our Series A. And they founded the expert network industry in a, in, um, in a company called GLG many years ago. And so they like, quickly got what we were doing. It was serendipitous through one of our relationships um, via Goddard Abel. And, um, and it was just felt like a lot of really good culture alignment and a lot of really good sort of institutional knowledge. If they built the category and expert networks, you know, it's, it's, they'd certainly be able to help us unlock that vision for search. And so we weren't raising during that process, but we met them and thought they'd be a really additive partner to helping us go build our vision. So that was one. And then two was, um, was actually our most recent round with Westcap, where the partner that led our round founded a, a firm called Aegon Zender. And Aegon Zender is one of the largest in the United States, he found the firm. So he's one, it's one of the largest executive search firms in the world. And so him and I had been building a relationship for seven years where we met and I met him in his office in Dallas and, you know, right when we were getting started and it was this like literally two person company and I was pitching this big vision and we stayed in touch over the years. And when he left Aegon Zender, you know, he gave me a call and we just started working together on a couple of projects. We have a software product called Atlas that, they, uh, that they're using now to manage their own network. And I can share a bit more on that in a second. But, you know, through that experience, working together and getting to know each other, we, we decided there was something we you know, wanted to go do together and, and they ended up leading our Series B. And so um, for us, it's always been serendipitous, but I really 
you know, push founders or anyone listening that pick the right partners. You know, raising capital is very serious. You have to pay it back one day. You have new owners and shareholders in the business, and you want partners that you're really excited to work through all the problems, the good and the bad times with, um, not just the ones that look great on paper or in the TechCrunch press release. And you were talking about cultural alignment. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I think I think you have to be very clear on what the business is and isn't, right? And you have to be somewhat principled as a founder, you know, which is hard to do, right? Especially if you have cash issues. But here's the vision of what we want to do. That vision is the vision of what we want to accomplish. I hear you, Miss, Mr. or Mrs. Investor, but like that's not aligned to who we want to build, what we want to build, who we are as people, and what we want to create long term, right? And so, like in Hunt Club, we were really principled that like this is probably a you know multiple year journey, maybe even a multi decade journey, and just building something to arbitrage growth and selling it was not what we wanted to do. Um, we really wanted to create sort of category defining business, and you know we wanted partners that were on that journey for a long time with us. And so that was a huge part of of as we spoke to people about investing in Hunt Club, um, on where there was really good cultural alignment that like. If the pressure to grow one year is greater than provide a great experience for our clients and our customers, like we wanted the optionality to stop growing to make sure we're getting that right as we scale. And um, and we've been really fortunate to have amazing investors that that share that sentiment with us. Obviously, with with those investors, you know, you had to share a vision. So when it comes to vision, imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a in a world where the vision of the company is fully realized. What does that world look like? People are doing business almost primarily through trusted relationships and introductions, whether it's your next business development deal or your next great hire or hiring a great service provider to help you with a need. The network affects power, how you find things, and it's rooted in trust. And we think that creates a better world and a better business. So how does, for example, like network effects, you know, work with with you guys, you know, with, with your company? Yeah. So when you sign up, so if you think about Hunt Club, think of it as almost like a bit of a three-sided marketplace. So we have candidates, we have experts, and we have our clients. And so when we run a search, we really leverage our expert network and their network. They sign up, they will drop their LinkedIn networks, their Gmail networks. And we know who they know. We know who they're connected to. We build technology to understand their strength relationship between their network. And our technology makes it really easy to serve up you know, the five to 10 people in their network who might be an amazing fit for one of our clients' search. Um, and so you know, it's really an example of how we're investing internally is like, how do we really understand, you know, what do our clients need? Who's the perfect person in our network? And who's the perfect person to introduce them? Um, so it's really power and trust in every interaction across the board. So in this case, I mean, imagine you were to um, have the opportunity of going back in time. And you're able to go back in time to that moment where you know, perhaps you were like thinking about doing something of your own. Maybe during the days where right before going to KPMG and you were able to give your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would you say that would be the piece of advice that you would give to that younger Nick and why, given what you know now? Yeah, I think it's it's a hard one, right? But because um, part of, I think, what like gives you the fortitude to start something is probably... Um, if you remove that edge is probably the reason why you would never get going. But I think for me, I would just say, be patient. You know, I think growing up and starting our first thing, you read the tech crunch posts, you compare yourself to the world, you compare yourself to everyone tweeting on Twitter. And, you know, everyone's practice is different. Everyone's timeline is different. Um, what success looks like is different to everyone. Right. And I think like, you know, I would have encouraged myself, Hey, 
business is a decade, decade, decade long game, like, you know, it's multiple decades, like slow down, be patient and always make sure you're doing right by every interaction. And I feel like I've lived through that mantra a lot, but you know, there are moments where I've burnt a bridge or two or moments where I was so, you know, determined to pursue something with vigor and complete it that, um, that the interaction wasn't perfect. And I think it's just, you know, be patient and great things happen. Do you remember in your own journey when you came to the realization that this was more of a marathon versus a sprint? Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, it's it's the cool thing about the way we built this business has always been kind of set up that way. So we we bootstrapped it for three years before we raised a single dollar of outside capital. Um, business was, you know, basically been profitable five or six out of seven years since we ran it. And so, you know, it's really one of those things where I think it's, we've always sort of designed it that way. And I actually think like you think about like, some of the best companies of the future, like it's, there's so many different iterations of software in today's world. There's so many different iterations of consumer marketplaces. Getting a consumer's attention now is nearly impossible, right? Like, so I actually think the only types of businesses one can build, um, if you're not dealing in some sort of exponential technology or like generative AI or something that truly is transformative um, in a certain category, like the only thing you can build is something that really solves customer problems in a, in a slower scale. And so I think, I think the future actually looks more like people being really patient, being capital efficient, focusing on solving smaller customer needs, and then growing their sort of base of revenue and their scale as they get a stronger foundation. Love it. So, uh, Nick, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to reach out? Just nick at hunclub.com. They say enough. Well, Nick, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thanks for having me on, Andre. It was fun. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.